Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! The president and our administration are fully committed to offering and supplying federal support to the state officials and doing everything we can to, to help them both in terms of recovery, but also whatever is necessary to ensure the folks are safe and, um, and out of harm's way. Hurricane Ian has devastated parts of Florida with catastrophic flooding and a record-breaking storm surge, leaving entire communities underwater, trapping people in their own homes. The Lee County Sheriff says hundreds of people may have died in the storm. More than two and a half million people have lost power. 14 million Floridians remain under a flood alert as the storm moves inland. We'll get the latest, then look at the links between the climate crisis, hurricanes, and rising sea levels. Then, what happens inside prisons when authorities ignore evacuation orders ahead of catastrophic storms? My name is Angel, and I'm in Tampa, Florida. We're facing the threat of Hurricane Ian, and we want to make sure that those who are incarcerated in county jails, prisons, and immigration detention centers are safe and secure. So we are calling on our leaders to take action here all across the state of Florida, grassroots with fight toxic prisons. Then, as Russia announces it'll formally annex four occupied areas of Ukraine, we'll speak to a prominent Ukrainian journalist who's been investigating potential war crimes committed by Russia in areas that were were recently recaptured during Ukraine's counteroffensive. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Hurricane Ian has made landfall on Florida's Gulf Coast as one of the strongest hurricanes ever to hit the continental United States. The storm crashed ashore Wednesday afternoon near Naples, just shy of Category 5, with sustained winds of 150 miles per hour, a 30-foot wide eye wall, and hurricane-force winds that extended 40 miles from the center. High winds and storm surges devastated coastal communities, while forecasters say torrential rains will continue continue to bring life-threatening flooding to much of Florida in the coming hours and days. The Lee County Sheriff says hundreds of people may have died in the storm. He enforced the evacuation of more than 1.8 million Florida homes and knocked out power to some 2.5 million people, many of whom lack clean tap water. After headlines, we'll go to Florida for the latest and also speak with a climate scientist. Meanwhile, at least 20 Cuban migrants are missing and fear dead after their boat capsized off the coast of Florida Wednesday amidst heavy surf from Hurricane Ian. The Coast Guard says it rescued three of the asylum seekers, while four others managed to swim to shore on Florida's Stock Island. This comes as Cuban officials are working to restore electricity to millions of people after Hurricane Ian caused the island's entire electrical grid to collapse. 
in Puerto Rico. An oil tanker will begin unloading 300,000 barrels of diesel fuel to the island after the Biden administration granted a limited exemption to shipping restrictions under the century-old Jones Act. In a statement, the Department of Homeland Security said the fuel was needed to provide electricity to critical facilities as Puerto Rico recovers from Hurricane Fiona. Nearly two weeks after that storm collapsed the island's fragile electrical grid, about 20 percent of homes and businesses remain without power. There are widespread shortages of clean drinking water. Russia's announced plans to formally annex four regions of Ukraine seized by Russia's military after its invasion in February. The Kremlin says President Vladimir Putin will announce the annexations during a speech in Moscow Friday. This week, authorities in the four Russian-held regions said residents voted overwhelmingly in support of referenda on whether to become part of the Russian Federation. The votes were condemned as a sham and a violation of international law by Ukraine, the United Nations, the U.S. and its allies. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials have finished excavating a mass burial site in a forest in the town of Izium, which Ukraine recaptured in a counteroffensive this month. Kharkiv's regional governor said most of the 436 people buried at the site had their hands bound with gunshot wounds and signs of torture. Later in the broadcast, we'll speak with a Ukrainian journalist just back from Izium. German officials are warning of an environmental disaster in the Baltic Sea after the Nord Stream pipelines that carry Russian gas to terminals in Europe ruptured Monday in what the U.S. and the European Union officials have called an act of sabotage. Swedish scientists say they detected two large underwater explosions shortly before pressure through the pipelines plummeted. One of the leaks is producing a nearly half-mile-wide pool of bubbling seawater. Officials estimate some 300,000 metric tons of methane have vented into the atmosphere from that site alone, which would put it among the worst gas leaks in history. Methane is a significant contributor to global heating. It can linger in the atmosphere for decades before breaking down with about 80 times the warming power of carbon dioxide. Finland's government says it will severely limit passenger traffic along its border with Russia and will ban Russian citizens traveling with tourist visas from entering Finland beginning on Friday. The announcement came amidst a mass exodus of military-age men seeking to avoid conscription in the Russian military after President Putin announced plans to draft an additional 300,000 troops. In a break from its allies in Moscow, Kazakhstan on Wednesday promised to ensure the safety of an estimated 100,000 Russians who've crossed its border. Meanwhile, tens of thousands more have crossed into Armenia, Georgia, Mongolia and other neighboring countries in recent days. Vice President Kamala Harris has wrapped up her four-day trip to Asia with a visit to the demilitarized zone separating North and South Korea. Earlier today, she spoke after North Korea test-fired two short-range ballistic missiles, and a South Korean official said the North was preparing its first nuclear weapons test in five years. The DPRK has a ballistic missile launch program, apparently, including just yesterday, and are destabilizing the peace and security of this region. Our shared goal, the United States and the Republic of Korea, is a complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. 
Camp Humphreys, south of Seoul, is the largest U.S. overseas military base and one of several American bases in South Korea that together house almost 30,000 troops and material. Last year, the Biden administration ruled out redeploying so-called tactical nuclear weapons to South Korean soil, though the U.S. military maintains a large arsenal of long-range missiles and naval-based nuclear weapons capable of devastating North Korea. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces killed four Palestinians and wounded more than 44 others during a Wednesday morning raid on the Janine refugee camp. It's the latest in a series of near-daily raids that the Israeli military has been carrying out in Palestinian communities. Three of the four men who were killed were members of the armed group Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, according to Al Jazeera. This is Atta Abu Rumela, a Fatah leader in Janine. They were deliberately assassinated by Israeli occupation forces who stood on rooftops in the upper areas of the Janine camp and targeted anything that moved. In Oakland, California, at least six adults were injured in a mass shooting Wednesday. The shooting occurred at Rudsdale Newcomer High School, which serves students who are at risk of not graduating and have recently immigrated to the United States after fleeing their home countries because of violence and instability. Oakland's assistant chief of police, Darren Allison, says a suspect remains at large. We are currently and actively looking for at least one shooter, although there may be other individuals involved. We have our ceasefire teams, as well as our violent crime operations teams, actively in this moment following up on leads, looking to bring to justice those responsible for this heinous act. In Illinois, wounded survivors and the families of three people killed in a mass shooting during a Fourth of July parade in Highland Park have filed a lawsuit against gunmaker Smith & Wesson, two gun stores, the man who's been charged in the shootings, and his father. The lawsuit charges the gunmaker and gun sellers acted with negligence and employed deceptive practices, arguing the shooter was the type of young consumer susceptible to Smith & Wesson's deceptive and unfair marketing practices, and that the shooting was both predictable and preventable. In California, Governor Gavin Newsom signed legislation Wednesday, making it easier for farm workers to cast their ballots in union elections by mail and protecting them from retaliation from their employers. In a statement, Governor Newsom said, quote, California's farm workers are the lifeblood of our state, and they have the fundamental right to unionize and advocate for themselves in the workplace, unquote. Just last month, Newsom had threatened to veto the bill, known as AB 20. 183, but reversed his opposition after President Joe Biden and other top Democrats spoke in favor of it. That followed a long grassroots campaign waged by thousands of farm workers and their allies who in August marched over 300 miles to California's state capital in Sacramento to demand protections for union supporters. United Farm Workers President Teresa Romero celebrated as the bill became law. It's an incredible victory. Starting next year, farm workers can participate in elections free from intimidation and deportations. Si se puede. To see our interview on the organizing efforts, go to democracynow.org. Thousands of prisoners in Alabama began a labor strike this week to protest overcrowded, understaffed and dangerous prison conditions. The strikers warned that despite a 2020 intervention by the Justice Department, conditions within Alabama prisons remain, quote, incredibly unsafe, inhumane and exploitative. 
The work stoppage, which also calls for sentencing and parole reforms, began Monday after three months of planning by prisoners and with help from groups including Alabama Prison Advocacy and Incarcerated Families United. A warning to our audience, the following story contains graphic images. Here in New York City, never-before-seen images show people incarcerated at the notorious Rikers Island Jail, locked in cage showers and sleeping next to a pile of feces. The pictures were obtained by the news outlet Gothamist after the Manhattan District Attorney's Office requested them while investigating the consequences for people held at Rikers as they await trial, sometimes for months or years. This comes as the Texas Jail Project has documented severe overcrowding at the Harris County Jail in Houston, Texas, which has surpassed Rikers with 19 custody deaths in the first eight months of 2022, more than the total number of people who died in jail in nine of the last 10 years. Meanwhile, a federal court judge has ordered Los Angeles County to fix its massive backup and address squalid conditions in the jail's overcrowded inmate reception center after revelations of horrific treatment and ruled that officers are now barred from chaining anyone to a chair for more than four hours after some had been found to be chained for days. The Right Livelihood Awards have announced their 2022 laureates, recognizing those who show that systemic change is, quote, not only possible, but outright necessary in the face of failing governance and the breakdown of international order, unquote. This year's laureates include a mother and daughter from Somalia fighting against gender-based violence, a Ugandan organization battling oil and gas companies in order to protect the environment, and a Ukrainian group documenting war crimes and human rights violations. Alexandra Matvichuk and her Center for Civil Liberties were honored for their work promoting democracy in Ukraine in the face of Russia's invasion. We are fighting for our freedom in all senses, for a freedom to be independent country, for a freedom to be Ukrainians with our own language and culture, and for a freedom to have a democratic choice, which means to build and to develop our country where human rights of everybody are protected. To see our interview with Loria, go to democracynow.org. And some longtime progressive journalist and anti-war activist William Rivers Pitt has died of a heart attack at the age of 51. For nearly two decades, Pitt served as managing editor and senior writer for the news site truthout.org. In 2002, he co-authored the book War on Iraq, What Team Bush Doesn't Want You to Know, with former weapons inspector Scott Ritter. William Rivers Pitt spoke out repeatedly against false claims by then-President George W. Bush that Saddam Hussein had acquired weapons of mass destruction. Well, in the State of the Union address in 2003, Mr. Bush said that there were, what was it, 26,000 liters of anthrax, 38,000 liters of botulinum toxin, 500 tons, which is 1 million pounds, of sarin, mustard, and VX nerve agent, 30,000 munitions capable of delivering the stuff, mobile biological weapons labs and uranium from Niger to, for use in nuclear bombs. By the way, the page describing all of this is still up on the White House website today. It's called Disarm Saddam Hussein. You can go find it yourself. I said, that's a pretty big lie. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. Coming up, we go to Florida to look at the catastrophic damage caused by Hurricane Ian, one of the strongest hurricanes ever to hit 
the continental United States. Stay with us. And Russell. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show in Florida, where authorities say hundreds may be dead after Hurricane Ian made landfall Wednesday along the state's southwestern coast as a powerful Category 4 storm, one of the strongest hurricanes ever to hit the area. Ian was about 500 miles wide when it crashed into Florida with a 30-foot-wide eyewall and hurricane-force winds that extended 40 miles from the center. Satellite images show the storm engulfing the entire state. High winds and storm surges devastated coastal communities. Some storm surges were 12 feet high. Some cities saw more than a foot of rainfall. More than two and a half million have lost power as we broadcast. Many are also without water. Rescue teams are working in the dangerous conditions to find people trapped in their homes. Earlier this morning, the sheriff of Lee County, Florida, Carmine Marceno, spoke by phone to ABC's Good Morning America. While I don't have confirmed numbers, I definitely know the fatalities are, are in the hundreds. Um, there are thousands of people that are waiting to be rescued. Uh, and again, cannot give a true assessment until we're actually on scene assessing each scene. And we can't access people. That's the problem. Fatalities in the hundreds? So far, confirmed in the hundreds, uh, meaning that we are responding to events, uh, drownings, uh, and again, unsure of the exact details because we are just starting to scratch the surface on this assessment. Uh, We're doing everything that we possibly can. Again, now it's to protect and preserve lives, uh, and we are in full force doing that. That's Lee County, Florida Sheriff Carmine Marceno being interviewed by George Stephanopoulos on ABC's Good Morning America. Hurricane Ian has now weakened to a tropical storms, dumping torrential rains as it heads toward Georgia, Virginia, North Carolina and South Carolina after leaving a path of catastrophic damage. For more, we go to Tampa, Florida, for an update from Sean Kinnan, News and Public Affairs Director at Community Radio Station WNN. Um, 
Sean, you are hunkered down there at WMNF. Your building is built to withstand a Category 5 storm. I have visited it repeatedly. It was in the track of Ian originally, but ultimately the storm hit south of you. You're staying there because you live on an island where you could not go back. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Give us the latest as you serve the community with information. Thank you, Amy. Yes, it, uh, in Tampa, I am in a building that can withstand a Category 5 hurricane, but lucky for the people of the Tampa Bay area, that's not what struck here. We were we were spared. But uh, the most important story right now is what's happening down in southwest Florida, as you, as you heard from the sheriff of Lee County, where hundreds of people are confirmed dead from this storm with the unbelievable storm surge that came through. Uh, s- several feet of water in in major cities in southwest Florida, like Naples and Fort Myers. It's just been devastating. And we don't know the full extent of the damage yet because it's just now daylight and it's just now safe enough perhaps to go outside for people uh, and, and for these emergency crews to go out and assess the damages. Sean, could you uh, talk a little bit more about where these uh, fatalities, if there's been any talk of where uh, the most fatalities occurred, and also if there's any word on when uh, a power might be restored, two and a half million uh, uh, people now without uh, electricity? Yeah, so I don't know that much firsthand about the fatalities. All I know is what I'm hearing from the Lee County Sheriff. And just to give people a perspective of where that is, that's the largest city in Lee County is Fort Myers. And that's right where the storm came ashore. There's two barrier islands that it struck, Captiva and Sanibel on the way in, and also Cayo Costa. So it struck these barrier islands first and went ashore in Lee County. So there's, of course, going to be the most casualties there perhaps, but there's been very strong rains and storm surges all along the coast from Naples all the way up to almost to Sarasota. So perhaps there could be some there. I I don't have any knowledge about that. But now we're also worried about river flooding inland. And, uh, you know, there's some of these rivers are going to be flooding for days and days from now because of how much rain has been accumulating upstream. I want to bring in Dr. Harold Wanless. And, Sean, I'm going to ask you to stay with us. I hope you don't have to get off since you're on the air constantly. But Dr. Harold Wanless is a professor of geography and urban sustainability. Um, Hurricane Ian is the 121st hurricane to hit Florida since 1851, which has faced more hurricanes than any other state, millions of residents living along its coastlines. The storm first hit Cuba as a Category 1 storm before it intensified to Category 4, near 5, when it made landfall in Florida. So we want to talk more about the rapid intensification of these storms and the sea level rise that's already occurred along Florida and how that's affecting the storm's impact. We go to Coral Cables, where we're joined by Dr. Harold Wanless, a professor in geography and urban sustainability at the University of Miami. He is on the board of directors of the CLIO Institute, a nonprofit dedicated to climate, educa- uh, climate crisis education and advocacy. Um, <clears throat> so you're in Coral Gables, Coral Gables. If you can talk about everything you're seeing in Florida now and where the climate or global heating plays such a key role. Well, thank you for having me, Amy. Yes, um, one of the things we've been seeing, and it certainly was true with Ian, 
is that when the wind shears down, the water is warm and it's the ocean water is getting much warmer because of climate change. We are seeing these, these storms that aren't otherwise stressed just exploding in intensity. And uh, this was forecast by the hurricane folk. And it's exactly what's happening again and again. And we watched this one as it left Cuba just explode into this Category 4 storm. Um, and that is, is in large part because of a warming ocean. And the Caribbean Sea and the southern um, Gulf of Mexico was extremely warm for this time of year. And, and that, that really drove it. Um, the, the other thing that we've seen with many storms, maybe only a little bit with this one, is that the steering currents tend to be weaker. So they tend to slow down and hang around where uh, uh, the one that hit Houston a few years ago was a good example of that. And, uh, and they end up just maybe not being a windstorm at the end, but dumping huge amounts of rain. And that sort of happened here. We slowed down as we moved on to Florida, and the rain around Orlando and south has been been what will be catastrophic. One one thing about this storm is where we the, the places that were really hit were these very low barrier islands of Sanibel and Captiva and Costa. These are extremely low and vulnerable. We haven't really heard much of anything from them yet. And they are, it's, they got the main onshore surge. We saw pictures yesterday about from Naples with the water coming in, uh, and, and on Marco, which were well south of the main push. And we saw some of Fort Myers Beach, but those, those outer barrier islands were just right in the path of the, the big eyewall onshore surge, and that's going to be, be a huge problem uh, for those islands. It, it's it's going to be tragic when we see the evidence of what's happened there. And could you elaborate? I mean, even though Hurricane Eva, uh, Ian was downgraded to a tropical storm, what do you expect to unfold uh, uh, in the next few days in the worst hit areas in Florida? Well, and it's not just Florida anymore. There's a state of emergency on up the coast all the way to Virginia now. And uh, because it's, it's exiting um, Florida now, with 65 mile an hour winds still. So it's primed when it's at over the, the Gulf Stream, uh, which is again, warm water. It's primed to just reform as, a, as some level of hurricane. And then it will, uh, you know, it's just drawing in huge amounts of moisture. So, so um, uh, that, that's gonna be extreme. The, the problem with all the rain we've had in Florida, and I don't know the final numbers for the middle of the state, but um, we're, we're only, most of the state is less than 100 feet in elevation. A little bit is higher around Orlando. And so there's really no big slope for the water to pour off of, which means you're not going to have these catastrophic floods coming out of, intense floods out of rivers. But the water's going to stay flooding for days and days and days in in many of these intense intense rainfall areas so i that that's that's a second whammy and it and it 
as this water is draining back into the Fort Myers uh, area from from the rivers there, it, it uh, it's going to make it slower for even the storm surge to come back down. This was a fairly, it, it had an angle where the storm was moving up the coast rather than straight into it. And um, that meant that the storm surge could move, push in for hours and hours. And we saw that yesterday. When Andrew hit um, Miami-Dade County in 92, the storm surge probably lasted about 10 or 15 minutes. It was a fast-moving storm moving straight in. And uh, so it was in and out, and that's it. But this was, this was, this was a huge penetration of a storm surge. Dr. Ronless, at, at this time, when everyone's paying attention, you know, and you can only imagine what Pakistan is like when you have a third of the entire country underwater. This is a very close-up look at what that feels like um, here in the United States. But this time, when everyone's paying attention, it seems it's critical to talk about precisely what you're talking about, how global heating plays a role in this. And yet you have, like, the associate, the director of the National Weather Service saying on CNN, um, you know, you can never predict if a hurricane is a caused by climate change, any one particular hurricane. Well, that may be true. The bigger point he's making is, who knows if it's the climate crisis? You make a very different point, especially when you're talking about sea level rise well and and um because of, of changing speed of the gulf stream uh, all around south florida we're on the left side of the gulf stream and the florida current we've had since 1930 about a foot of sea level rise so an equivalent storm 90 years ago would have been dealing with a land that was a foot more out of water so we're it's not that that climate change may be something that will happen. We have warmed the ocean. That is putting more moisture into the atmosphere. We have expanded the ocean and uh, because of its warming, and that has raised sea level rise. We are melting ice from, from Greenland and Antarctica at an accelerating pace. That is, is going to, in the next few decades, make a quite dramatic influence on, on our present sea level rise very dramatic change. And all these things are, are playing a role. The other thing, when you just want to talk about all the rain, whether it's a hurricane or, or just rainstorms or even snowstorms on land, as the atmosphere warms, it holds more moisture as, as a water vapor. And as it moves on over the ocean, as it moves on land and, and cools down, it, it makes these heavier rains that we're seeing more and more of and even heavier snowfalls during the winter. And so the, these, this increase in severe flooding is not just along the coast from hurricanes, but it's also from, from storms um, where, where the atmosphere has moved from the ocean, water-laden onto to the land and, and is, is creating these, these intense precipitation events that are causing many of the floods we've seen in the last few years. These are increasing. All these are, are realities. Everything I've said is a reality of global warming because we have put more carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. You were just talking about the importance of methane, too, and uh, another powerful greenhouse gas. So, so these things are increasing 
everything from a warming atmosphere to a warming ocean to uh, uh, a melting of ice to increasing precipitation uh, over land. And, uh, and yeah. g- given that, uh, how much has uh, development uh, along these coastal areas changed to make uh, uh, buildings more secure and able to withstand uh, the effects of these uh, increasing number of extreme uh, weather events? And should there be so much development? Well, you could ask, should there be so many people, I guess, along with that. But, uh, uh, you know, there are four times the number of people when I was born in 1942 on earth that's that's amazing and we're we're expanding out into places most of our new development on barrier islands is places that we felt were too low or too vulnerable or too narrow and now if people want to live there that's what's left and there's so many examples where we we you look at it and you say that looks very risky and uh, but we're doing it and and we do it with houses, and then suddenly they turn into high-rise condominiums that are also extremely vulnerable. And as sea level rises and the shore wants to, to retreat landward, those are going to be left out in the ocean. And, and that will happen soon. Uh, you know, within the next few decades, we're really going to see that. Warren um, Pilkey at Duke says for every foot of sea level rise on a coast like the Gulf or the Atlantic, we should have one to 2,000 feet of landward retreat of the coast as the ocean and the available beach sand re-equilibrate. And, you know, we've just had this rise of sea level, and, and it's, we're now trying to equilibrate, equilibrate with that. But we're having more rise in the future because of accelerating ice melt. So. Uh, Dr. Harold Wanless, want to thank you for being with us, professor in geography and urban sustainability at the University of Miami. Uh, Sean Canan, this is what you do every day uh, at WMNF in Tampa, bringing out this kind of information. Your final comments as you live and broadcast from the station right now in the midst of the storm. Yeah, so Amy, what I would say to Dr. Wanless's point about the barrier islands and how dangerous it is for people to be building there and to be living there, just to give an example, the Sanibel Island Causeway, the Sanibel Causeway was completely wiped away in this storm. We've seen pictures of this bridge. It's the only road from the mainland to Sanibel Island and Captiva Island. It's been wiped away. So how do you get rescue supplies to these people? How do people evacuate if they didn't evacuate already? And, you know, this is just a, a very powerful storm, and we really don't know what to expect next as, as cleanup crews are, are just now going out to look at things. And to, to answer Nermeen's question from earlier, she was asking, when will power be restored to these people? We don't know, but we did hear from Duke Energy Florida, who said that they have to wait until the wind dies down to, in order to go out and restore the power to these people. That might be this afternoon in Pinellas County, which is in, near St. Petersburg, which is what they said. But who knows how long that is in Orlando or in Cocoa Beach or places where the wind is still howling. Well, Sean Canan, we want to thank you for being with us, News and Public Affairs Director at Community Radio Station WMNF in Tampa, Florida. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As millions of Florida residents in the path of Hurricane Ian were ordered to evacuate, advocates pushed authorities to also evacuate over what they say are as many as 176,000 
prisoners. That's right. People incarcerated in prisons, jails, immigrant detention centers. Some prisoners saw their units evacuated. Others were put on lockdown with minimal staff. Lee County Sheriff's Office said they declined to evacuate people from the 457-bed Fort Myers jail, even though the county map shows the jail is in the mandatory evacuation zone. This morning on Good Morning America, the Lee County Sheriff confirmed fatalities were in the hundreds in the region. When Hurricane Ida devastated southern Louisiana last year, many people were in prison jails that did not evacuate. In the weeks following the storm, they faced limited access to drinking water, food, electricity and medicine. Many also remember how people held in the Orleans Parish prison after Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans in 2005 were deserted in their locked cells as sewage-tainted water rose up to their chests. For more, we're joined in Tampa by Angel D'Angelo. He is with the Restorative Justice coalition, as well as the campaign to fight toxic prisons. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Angel. Just tell us what you've learned. I mean, and this latest news um, out of uh, Lee County that they refused to evacuate the jail, even though it was in the evacuation zone. Good morning, and thank you for having us here. Um, we're very, very concerned about the conditions in Lee County, as well as throughout the entire zone of where Ian has landed. We haven't gotten full updates on the status of people who are incarcerated, but we know from, as you mentioned earlier, from past incidences that jails, prisons, immigration centers, and juvenile halls can be dangerous places during storms, especially with long-term power outages. So it's not just the windfall we're worried about. We're worried about the conditions in the days and weeks following with no AC, uh, lack of sanitation and water, lack of food, lack of appropriate staff, and access to health. And yesterday, Angel, the Florida Department of Corrections issued a press release uh, outlining some of the safety measures they've put in place, saying approximately 2,500 inmates had been evacuated. Could you please put that in context? How many inmates there are in Florida? We mentioned a little in our introduction, uh, in prisons, in jails and in detention centers. 2,500 have been evacuated. I don't know the number off offhand, including all of the jails, prisons, federal jails, state levels, uh, juvenile centers and immigration centers. But I know that Florida is a large state as far as our mass incarceration. United States, of course, being uh, the holder of 25 percent of inmates in the world, Florida being one of the top in the United States. So the amount that they've evacuated certainly doesn't scratch the surface. I know there's been some evacuations, for example, in Hillsborough County, Florida. We have two jails. And thanks to the campaign. Uh, to fight toxic prisons, they evacuated individuals from Orient Road Jail and moved them to Falkenberg Jail, which at least is not in an evacuation zone. So that's one example of an evacuation that did happen uh, completely to removing all inmates from that jail to prioritize their safety. And we're not sure why Lee County and Charlotte County, who were in uh, danger zones, did not take those actions. So talk about what authorities say when you demand that these prisons be evacuated. Uh, where do they get evacuated to? Absolutely. So in Charlotte County, for example, a member of Fight Toxic Prisons contacted Charlotte County Jail as one example and was told that the jail itself serves as a shelter and that the building is sturdy. And we hear the building is sturdy is a quite a common line from prison and jail authorities. And whether or not that's true, I mean, it may even be true. It's not just the windfall that we're worried about or the sturdiness of the building, but rather the after effects for, for a group of forgotten people who really no one's checking on 
We've heard stories of flooding, for example, during Hurricane Michael in 2018. Florida prisons in the panhandle had roof damage, floods, shortages of staff and access to health care. So it's not just about what's happening during the windfall, but the days and sometimes weeks after the storm. So the authorities also on top of that to consider the authorities are also considering risking the lives of their own paid staff. Uh, as well as the people who are forced to to stay there during incarceration. Just to give some numbers, um, t- Florida has the th- um, third greatest number of prisoners. California is uh, Texas is number one with 130, close to 136,000. California is two uh, with uh, 90, more than 97,000 prisoners. And Florida is number three with over 81,000 prisoners. And this is from 2020. Um, as you say, the issues are also issues like contamination of water and everything inside the prisons. Are you speaking to people inside? Do you have access? One of the biggest problems now is people having access, let alone prisoners having access to outside world at a time like this. Yes, actually, that is a a huge concern, obviously around the clock, but especially during an emergency. Uh, A member of Fight Toxic Prisons did speak with someone who was incarcerated who had some concerns. I also can tell you that I spoke personally with someone in Pasco County Jail. Pasco is not necessarily in a serious threat area, but of course, all of Florida was under a state of emergency. My friend in Pasco County Jail has been subject to abuse for the last several weeks and forced into solitary confinement for unrelated reasons. Uh, finally was able to call me after two weeks of no contact and barely even seemed aware that there was a storm, certainly was not aware of the intensity of the storm. When I asked questions about, you know, of course, his situation in general, I had to throw in about the storm. And he he said that he felt that the building was safe as far as the exterior, but he he identified to me that he has not heard about any extra safety protocols and even said to me, that a correctional officer told him, we don't care about y'all in here. Well, Angel D'Angelo, we thank you for bringing attention to this very critical issue, and we will continue to cover it. Um, Angel is with the Restorative Justice Coalition, as well as the Fight Toxic Prisons Group. He's speaking to us from Tampa, Florida. Next up, as Russia announces it's formally going to annex four occupied areas of Ukraine, we'll speak to a prominent Ukrainian journalist who's just back from an area of um, that has just been retaken by Ukraine, investigating potential war crimes. Stay with us. Fantastic Voyage by Coolio. The 59-year-old Grammy-winning rapper died on Wednesday. 
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We end today's show looking at the war in Ukraine. Russia has announced it will formally annex four areas of occupied Ukraine on Friday. This comes after voting ended Tuesday in a hastily organized uh, series of referenda that were widely denounced by Ukraine and its allies as a sham. Ukrainians living in the occupied areas could soon be drafted into the Russian military. Last week, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a partial military mobilization to draft at least 300,000 people. This has prompted widespread protest in Russia and a mass exodus of draft-age men. At least 200,000 Russians have fled the country over the past week. This all comes after Ukraine launched a successful counteroffensive in the Kharkiv region, recapturing 3,400 square miles of land seized by Russia. That's more land than Russia had captured in the past five months. Investigators are now uncovering evidence of potential war crimes, including mass graves and suspected torture chambers in areas that had been under Russian occupation. We go now to Natalia Gomenyuk. She is a Ukrainian journalist based in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. Her latest piece and The Guardian is headlined, Putin is mobilizing 300,000 more soldiers to fight his war, but Ukrainians feel hope, not fear. Her other recent piece, which appeared in The Washington Post, is headlined, Ukrainians are rejoicing at victory and awash in trauma and grief. Natalia is the founder of Public Interest Journalism Lab. Her work focuses on human rights, conflict, reporting, and documenting war crimes with the Reckoning Project. Natalia Gomenyuk, thank you so much for being with us, joining us today from Vienna, Austria. Can you talk about your trip to Ilium, what you found there, and Kharkiv? Um, what's being discovered? So, of course, apart from the joy of the liberation of the territory where around 150,000 people live, we also uh, find these uh, horrendous things like the mass graves. And uh, we're speaking about 300 uh, different towns, villages, hamlets. But like being in a couple of them, we can see that in any major, let's say, small town, there would be a torture chamber where people would be kept without any, you know, reason, uh, largely male, but also female. And uh, especially being very careful of documenting, uh, we, we see that they would be tortured with, uh, uh, you know, electric shock, uh, beaten uh, and held in the severe um conditions. And at least in Kharkiv region, uh, the the local authorities, the Ukrainian authorities speak about the around 18, this type of the torture chambers. Uh, we uh, may verify that as a journalist uh, coming from town to town and seeing with our own eyes and talking to the people who were uh, liberated. And this is unfortunately not very much the news for us. Uh, we've been following the situation earlier. And what is important to understand when we're discussing this so-called this so-called annexation or the the other territories which is under the Russian occupation now, we ha we hear the the similar reports uh, for the last months. So for Ukrainians, it's still the critical point to liberate other towns because it's very practical. Uh, story for, for the people to regain, not just to regain the territory, but free the people from uh, these persecutions which are taking place.
Natalia, could you elaborate before we go to the other areas that uh, need to be liberated? Uh, could you elaborate uh, on uh, the number of people you spoke to and the kinds of stories you heard uh, uh, in the areas where, where you recently were, Kharkiv, etc.? So, look, for, for my, uh, my team, we've spoken about hundreds of people within the last half of uh, year, which tells us more or less the consistent story. If you're speaking about, like, the recent trip, we would speak about the dozen. Out of this, there would be, you know, around a dozens, who, uh, dozens and a dozens who experienced the tortures themselves and had been kept in the basements. And uh, the 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 irony, and to tell that it's 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 more systematic. We can see that the very similar patterns. The way how in different towns people would be tortured by particularly the Russian soldiers, um, and uh, with all kind of the mockery and reference to uh, you know glorious Russia and how they would uh, you know like satisfy Vladimir Putin, which was a bit. Shocking even for me at this stage. Uh, largely man, but what I should say that the person who could be a man, let's say, would constitute a danger and somebody without, you can be, you know, a Ukrainian Armenian, a Ukrainian Russian speaker, you can be a local teacher, you can be just physically fit, or you can have a weird tattoo. That would be enough to, to, to get into this uh, situation, unfortunately. And were there uh, incidents that other uh, human rights organizations have uh, uh, documented of sexual violence uh, against women? Uh, there were the cases, and I think the UN also issued the recently the report where things were recorded. Uh, we know these cases are, uh, are there. Uh, we can ourselves uh, not verify, but hear the records from the trusted uh, let's say, trusted sources. The problem with that, that according, according to the Ukrainian legislation, the, the woman or the person who has been raped should report herself or himself. Uh, otherwise, this case is not considered, uh, which, of course, because of the trauma, uh, makes these investigations more difficult and, of course, traumatic. You, you have just come from Izium. Uh, in our headlines today, we reported Ukrainian officials have finished excavating a mass burial site in a forest there, which Ukraine recaptured in the counteroffensive. Kharkiv's regional governor said most of the 436 people buried in the site had their hands bound with gunshot wounds and signs of torture. Can you talk about this area, Izium, its significance for people outside of Ukraine, and then if you also have found um, these kind, this kind of, um, uh, well, what many would call war crimes? Uh, so we found a lot. And I won't say that, unfortunately, there is a significance of this town. These are the first, uh, you know, number of the towns which are newly liberated. So uh, contrary to compared to, for instance, Bucha and the stories and the re regaining the, the territories in the, after the first months of the war, uh, we can speak about the towns where the Russian stayed for half a year. Uh, and that makes situation worse and the number of the cal casualties bigger. But uh, we talk all the time to the people who are trying to escape from those territories, uh, which is 
difficult since May. And uh, we, we know, knowing the villages, that in, in that village there is a house where, for instance, 10 people are missing and that amount of people were brought. So the smaller town, the smaller this mass grave is. But uh, we, we can speak about an omnipresent practice. So it's not the aberration. That's the problem. The Izum is not an aberration. It's the system uh, which, uh, of course, uh, so, so I think the very important message would be that it's not just about uncovering. It's about, you know, stopping something which was happening, uh, which might, ha might happen now. Because, for instance, I talked to, to a man who were liberated uh, and who left those prisons and luckily were not executed, especially because the town had been retaken. And uh, Natalia, what are the other towns now where uh, your work is focused, meaning uh, what towns do you expect to be uh, uh, retaken now? And ha are you able to hear anything from uh, people there where Russian forces are still so, in control? Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. That's something we're doing on the daily basis for half a year. We're speaking about Kherson region, Mykolaiv region, and exactly those territories which uh, Russia uh, is uh, trying to, you know, uh, announce the annexation of it. Uh, of course, there was a success of the uh, Ukrainian counteroffense, uh, depending a lot on the surprise. It's not exactly, it won't be surprised any longer, but we're speaking about the possibility of liberating Kherson and maybe some other smaller towns. Uh, of course, there is this, um, which I won't probably correct, there is the media using the term, you know, sham referendum or something. What we know by talking to the people, it's a bit of different situation. It's not really you rig the elections or you pretend or you write down the ballots and try to, uh, you know, show that the more people voted than actually voted. Uh, talking to the people, because there is a phone connection, there is sometimes the internet connections, uh, and there is enough of, enough of visual evidence that there would be military with the guns coming to the houses of the people and forcing them to the vote. So it's really very disturbing to, to you know, like even to use the term, should it be called a referenda, if somebody comes to your house with a gun. And it's largely down to the, you know, to you know, to create this media operation that the, the world, the international press or the, the Russian official channels speaking about some kind of imitation of the um, of the poll. Natalia, you um, founded the uh, Public Interest Journalism Lab. You've certainly been critical of your own government of Ukraine as a journalist around issues of corruption and other issues. What about now, during the war? Um, have you also found uh, atrocities committed by Ukrainian soldiers? And what are your thoughts as well on the fact that so many Russian men are fleeing Russia right now so as not to serve in uh, Ukraine? Two different questions. Um, so I think that very important to understand that uh, we really use think about the places where war happens as the authoritarian places where there is the, uh, you know, like lack of freedom of speech, extreme centralization and things like that. Uh, interesting enough, Ukraine is, yeah, it's a democratic state with democratically elected government, with existing currently opposition, with existing pluralistic uh, press. And uh, therefore, we feel as you know, there is some responsibilities because of the security concern. But wherever I write 
the very same things which I write to the Ukrainian media, to the international media. Uh, no, we didn't have, uh, and we talked to numerous international organizations, uh, that uh, there is a different tactics. Ukrainians are waging the justified war. All my friends who are human rights defenders, uh, many of them are fighting themselves. They are also captured as prisoners of war. And these are the people who are human rights defenders themselves. And like talking even to them who are embedded in the army, you know, just checking myself, they would say that the war is waged in a very different way. Uh, we have some uh, information, uh, you know, on the early stage about whether the Ukrainians army, you know, how they treated the, the Russian prisoners of war. Uh, but those cases, as far as I know, had been investigated, investigated. What we really see from the Russian army, this is kind of this uh, impunity, which was in Chechnya, which was in Syria. We, we cooperating also with the, you know, Syrian lawyers uh, somehow to avoid this, uh, you know, subjectivity in a way. So they would reconfirm to us that, no, it's not your Ukrainian bias. It's, it's really like the strategy we've seen in different places. Um, that would be, uh, first of all, um, my, my answer to, to, to this. Um, and if, if that would be so, we, of course, would be uh, talking about that. And, and that issue of Russian soldiers, Russian people fleeing by the hundreds of thousands so that they don't serve in the Ukraine in the war in Ukraine. Uh, so that's absolutely, uh, you know, I have a lot of uh, friends and colleagues in, among the independent Russian uh, journalists and civil society. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, we know that it's, it's, it's really tremendous. By the way, why I wrote this term, you know, optimistic. Because so far, Russia waged this war in a way that there is a social pact that you, as a, as a citizen Russian, this war happens on the television. Uh, it's nothing real. Uh, it doesn't come to your kind of usual family if you stay indifferent and apolitical. Now it comes to every family. Uh, we know about the lines on the borders of Georgia, of Kazakhstan. I have people, uh, and uh, the, the advice, what, what my Russian friends uh, telling, trying to advocate their families is like, better go in prison. What we also know, these people are poorly equipped. It's, it's a bit like, unfortunately, slaughter. What our concern in Ukraine as well, uh, something we want to raise, I want to raise very much, that for the last four months, the uh, Ukrainian men uh, were not really allowed to leave the occupied territories. So the concern is that they would be drafted. It goes against the Geneva Convention. We also have the situation in occupied Crimea where there is this indigenous population of Crimean Tatars, which also disproportionately now, you know, drafted. And, uh, you know, it's a small population, indigenous population, and they're really thrown into the slaughter. And, of course, the Ukrainian army should defend the country. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really tragic move. Uh, but why, why I mentioned this term optimistic? Because we think that it might create some disturbance within the Russia and uh, the stability of the Russian regime uh, might be, you know, shaken in particular by, by, by this decision that this war would influence this middle class Russians. Uh, and especially in the regions where, you know, we know the villages where all the males are taken. Mm. We have 10 seconds, and, Natalia. And, uh, so that would be it. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us, Natalia Gomenyuk, who is the Ukrainian journalist based in Kyiv, founder of the Public Interest Journalism Lab, speaking to us today from Vienna. We'll link to her pieces in The Guardian and The Washington Post. And our deep condolences to the family of former Democracy Now! engineer Frank Garfi, who has passed away at the age of 57. And that does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, my birthday to Guster, Messiah Rhodes. Sharina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Ravi Karen, Hani Masood, Mary Conlin. We have two job openings at Democracy Now!, full-time job openings, one the people and culture manager, and the other as well is the assistant uh, digital editor uh, in social media. That does it for our show. Check out democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.